Well, welcome. What a lovely group of people you are. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah. It's just so nice to be together and to, um, there's so many things that we do all week and then we're all together on the Sunday and it's just so great. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your people and we thank you it's because you are present and, and um, the joy that you give us in each other's company is because of really the, the joy that we have in you. And we just thank you so much that you have drawn us together through our common love for Jesus Christ, that we have this common salvation, that we are made new, we are made clean because of what Jesus has done for us, and it's because of your great love for us, Lord. We just thank you so much that we can um, come meet freely, be in your word to learn from you, And Lord, I would just pray that you would use our time this morning to um, be refreshed, renewed, and um, to be ready for the battle again. And Lord, I pray that uh, your word would be strong in us, that your word would be that good seed that is planted in good soil, and that it would take root, that we would be as a strong tree planted by the waters with our roots deep and producing much fruit. So, Lord, I would just ask that you would be with us now in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been looking at the the man, Nehemiah, in the book, named after him, Nehemiah. And uh, we're on chapter 4 this week, so we're we're moving through it little by little. And uh, Nehemiah was in what uh, city when he we first entered into Nehemiah 1. What city was he in? Do you remember? In Susa, yeah. In what country? What nation? Persia, Persia yeah. So it's the capital of Persia, and Nehemiah is living in Persia, and the Lord said to him, um, like he got news about the walls of Jerusalem, prayed about it for four months, about the devastation in Jerusalem and the mess of Jerusalem, and uh, the Lord put it on his heart to return. So he's living a comfortable life in Persia. And God calls him to go back to Jerusalem and to spearhead the rebuilding of the walls. Now, um, Zerubbabel went back a number of years, 90 years before, and the temple was rebuilt, but the walls were never rebuilt. And the problem with the walls, the problem with um the shambles really around the city is the shame that comes from a city that is in a mess, a city that is in shambles, that nobody has the ability or the motivation or um, the equipment or the resources to rebuild and make it beautiful again. And um, one of the things that we, like we don't have walls around our city, but it would be like um, coming into the downtown core of Calgary right after the flood, and it's deserted, doesn't have the, it has people in it, but not the number of people that it used to have. It's a mess, there were um, pumps everywhere, there was flooding, there was, it was just a devastation. And it was, it was like the whole city came together 
and rebuilt what was messed up. Like even the, the stampede grounds were ruined and they rebuilt it in a matter of weeks. But that was, no, and the reason for that is, is because we can't let our city stay like this. And they had volunteers on mass that rebuilt. But look at the contrast with what happened in High River where they kept everybody out and it went for way too long in such a mess. And it's shameful. And so for Jerusalem, the city of God, to be in such a mess, like we, we really can't equate it in our minds. We only have little things that sort of give us an idea. But to have such a mess compared to the strong cities around them in Ashdod, which was the Philistine um, stronghold, and up north, and of course in Susa itself, and even in Babylon, these beautiful cities, like one of the seven wonders of the world is the Hanging Gardens of Babylon that we understand to have been built by um, Nebuchadnezzar. So the beauty of these other cities compared to the mess of Jerusalem means the shame that's on Jerusalem. And because God has put his name on that one city in all the world, that's where God has put his name, the shame is on God. And so there was basically these people were completely demoralized. And so our, our story opens with um, Nehemiah having gone back. He started the rebuilding. But of course, anytime we do a great work for God, we're going to face the enemy. And the enemy really is the enemy of our soul, um, Satan. He's at the, the root of it all. So the enemy uses shame, like we see in Jerusalem, chaos. The rubble was everywhere. It's not like it was nice and at least tidy. It was a mess. People could hardly walk down some of those streets because of the rubble that was all over the place. They certainly couldn't get around the whole city because of all the major stones that had fallen off of the walls and just rolled down the Kidron Valley. So the chaos that it causes, people coming and going, they're not using gates, they're just going willy-nilly in and out of the city. And the defeat that that causes for the people of God. These are all tools of the enemy. And what we're going to be looking at, like there's always a reason why the Lord includes certain things in his scripture. And I think one of the things that the Lord had in mind when he included Nehemiah was so that we would understand the impact that the enemy has on us and what the Lord has equipped us with for battling that enemy. And so um, we're going to look at how the Lord, in um, shame that the enemy brings, the Lord gives us strength. In um, chaos, he gives restoration. So our lives may be in chaos, but the Lord, he restores. And defeat um, is conquered in victory by Jesus. So we'll be looking at some of these scriptures, and if you want to turn with me to Nehemiah 4, I'm just going to be um, talking about the enemy that Nehemiah came against. So starting at verse 1. Now it came about when Sanballat heard. Now remember, we've talked about Sanballat before, and Tobiah, Sanballat was one of the enemies. And uh, his name actually, he's the Samaritan, but his name means um, the moon has given life. So he's a worshiper of the moon god and comes from that background. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, because he had already tried to keep them from doing it, but they are rebuilding the wall and it's happening very quickly actually, he became furious 
and very angry and mocked the Jews. And this is one of the things that we want to remember is that when people mock us, it often comes out of something that's going on with them, with God. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria, because he's from Samaria, and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? So he asked five questions. Just watch for them. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices like they think they're going to get their act back together? Can they finish in a day? Like this is no small job. It's been like this for hundreds of years now practically. So can they do this in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? So they were made from limestone and obviously had been torched and a lot of the stones were, had crumbled. And so can they do this? In other words, um, think of some of the, the mocking that sometimes we receive. There's hardly any Christians left in Canada. I've heard that. Nobody cares about the word of God anymore. That's, you know, old-fashioned. That's traditional. We don't need that anymore. We've got lots of other things. We've got an established world. We have money. We have brains. We don't need that crutch. Ever heard that one? So um, it, that's really essentially what Sanballat is saying, and behind him the enemy is speaking through him. And so that mocking that comes, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to do that? What do you think you're doing? Why do you think you should be the one to do that? And why do you think that that's so important? Do you think God will come to your rescue? You're in trouble? You think God's going to get you out of this mess? Not likely. Why should you hope? There's no hope. You don't have any hope in God. He's a fantasy. He's a figment of your imagination. These are all words of mockery because they're untrue. They're untrue. That isn't the truth. The truth is God is real. The truth is God is sovereign. The truth is God is overall. He protects you and he loves you. That's the truth. Maybe you've heard, well, God can't love you. Obviously, You've been wicked. You haven't done what you should have done. That's an enemy's lie. And he uses mockery to make us feel shame. And shame is one of the big um, tools that he uses in our lives. And, and if you talk to people, you can see it just in their demeanor that many, um, as we go, you know, as we're out in the world, as we're talking to people, you can see it just by the way they hold themselves, that there is shame. That's part of their makeup. And it's a lie. It's, it's a tool that the enemy uses to bring us down. And so we're going to see what Nehemiah does about that. Because um, it wasn't just Sanballat, Tobiah, who was an Ammonite from the other side of the Jordan, was near him, meaning near Sanballat, and he said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, like this massive wall, if a fox jumps on it, well, he would break their stone wall down. So he's, they're mocking, and they're trying in their words to stop 
the work of God, which is quite key to understanding Nehemiah's response because Nehemiah understands that their mocking is not about Nehemiah. It's about getting Nehemiah to stop what God has Nehemiah doing, what God is doing through Nehemiah. So when the enemy mocks you, there's probably something that you're doing that's great for God that he's trying to keep you from. And so Nehemiah answers, Hear, O our God. He doesn't talk to Sanballat and Tobiah first. The first thing he does is he talks to the Lord. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Listen to this. Do not forgive their iniquity. And let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. So they are having impact. That's quite the prayer. We are not taught that kind of prayer in Sunday school. (laughs) And Jesus told us to love our enemies. So how do we put this prayer together with what Jesus told us? And we're going to look at that. Just flip with me over to Psalm 83 because I think it gives us an insight into that prayer. Psalm 83, verses 1 to 3. This is a psalm of Asaph, who wrote a lot of the psalms. O God, do not remain quiet, do not be silent, and O God, do not be still. For behold, thine enemies make an uproar, and those who hate thee have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against thy people, and they conspire together against thy treasured ones. We're the treasured ones, and these people are conspiring against us. We can see that in the Church International, that they have many enemies that conspire to keep them from meeting together. And when they do meet, even in their own homes, they're dragged out and taken to prison. And that could happen here. It could happen here. But in the meantime, we definitely deal with the mocking of the enemy. And so Asaph comes to the Lord, and he, has, uh, he says to the Lord, Oh, Lord, look at what's happening to us. Look at how the enemy is mocking us and mocking what you are doing. You, we are your treasured ones. And he's saying, Oh, Lord, look at us. And look at verse 13. He, he talks a lot all the way through this. I don't want to read the whole thing. But at verse 13, he's going to um, pray really similarly to what Nehemiah just prayed. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with thy tempest, like with thy storm. Um, terrify them, fill their faces with dishonor, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Here it is. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that thou alone, whose name is the Lord, art the most high, El Elyon, over all the earth. That's cool. I can't say that that is really how my prayer life has gone sometimes. You know how you start and you, somebody's really giving you grief. You're doing something that you think is for the Lord. Somebody gives you grief. They always will. And you pray about it. 
and you go to the Lord and you say, oh, Lord, you know, I'm supposed to love them. I just, and I have said it to the Lord. I, I, honestly, Lord, I don't see what you see in them because I sure don't love them. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else has ever been that honest with the Lord, but I have. And as you pray... And as you kind of say, you know, well, they did this, and they did this, and they did this. And the Lord says, and, well, okay, I know I'm supposed to love them. If I'm going to love them, it'll have to be you through me, because there's no way I got it in me. That's the best that I do sometimes. But the Lord is telling us that actually disaster can fall, but for the purpose, not of giving their just rewards. That's not the point. The point is so that they may know that the Lord God is the Most High, El Elyon. And that's the whole world. So when our enemies suffer defeat, when God's um, victory is secured and we see it, it's so that his name is glorified. And Nehemiah understood this because he said so that God's work would be maintained. They've demoralized the builders. And what he's talking about here is these builders are doing this great work of God. And these guys over here are coming and they're trying to demoralize them so that the work of God will stop. And you know what? It does work a lot of times. There are many, many times where God's work stops because we, his people, let the enemy demoralize us. And the Lord says, let not their mocking get to you. Instead, it will come back on them in a way that shows that God is El Elyon, the God Most High. And so uh, Nehemiah says, um, right after he prays that, so we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height. So they got all the parts together, like all the people that were working around the wall, around the whole perimeter, they got it all joined together. And they got halfway up its height, which is, you know, pretty high up there. And so it's halfway built, and, um, but for sure it's all connected now, which is a big deal. And he says, um, for the people had a mind to work. And the question for us is, do we have a mind to do God's work? This is what we're doing. We are not going to deviate from it. And it doesn't matter if the enemy tries to demoralize us, if we get mocked for what we do, we are about the Lord's work. And it's, it's funny, the language that we use here, when we turn around and go out in the world and we use that same language, people look at us like, what is the matter with you? And I think that that's partially the tool of the enemy that keeps us quiet so that we don't talk about the strong work that God is doing in our midst. The many, many times that he comes to rescue the downtrodden. And you know what? Our ministry is not to the people who refuse, who are stiff-necked. Our ministry is to those people who are downtrodden, who are defeated, and who would love to be lifted up if only they had the good word of the Lord to know how to do that. And so um, that is really what Nehemiah is doing. His ministry is not to Tobiah or Sanballat. His ministry is to these people to do this good work. And he leaves the, 
you know, the life, the destiny of Sanballat and Tobiah and the others in the Lord's hands. The Lord will deal with them. Hopefully, someone, somehow they will come around. But in the meantime, they are demoralizing the work of the Lord and we're to go forward in the work of the Lord. And I will say quite often that that demoralizing comes from um, people that are in your world. It's not so much from outside because we can kind of shrug that off, but when it's somebody inside, somebody that's close to us, that is demoralizing and mocking, oh boy, that's a lot harder to take. And the Lord says, it's okay, hang in there. I'll worry about them. You are doing the Lord's work and keep going. And you know what? This church has been called to do the Lord's work in this community. And there will be times where people in this community will mock our church. But do God's people have a mind to work, to do God's work? Okay, so... um, Verse 7, now it came about when Sambalat, Tobiah, and now we're going to have these other guys added in, the Arabs, so Sambalat's in the north in Samaria, Tobiah's east in um, uh, Ammon, which is east of the Jordan. The Arabs, they're south of them. The Ammonites also east, um, that's the other ones with Tobiah. And the Ashdodites heard, the Ashdodites, that's the stronghold of of Philistia down by the Mediterranean Sea. So that's west of them. In other words, north, south, east, and west. They are surrounded by enemies completely. And when their enemies heard that the repair on the, of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. They did not want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. Finally, Jerusalem is a mess It's shameful, and they liked it that way. And when the church is in disarray, God's people, the body of Christ is in disarray, the enemy rejoices. And we are surrounded. We are surrounded by the enemy. But let's see what happens. So they were very angry, and all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. So... Their mocking didn't work. The people just kept on working in spite of the mocking that's going on, in spite of being told, (laughs) as if, as if, you'll never be able to do this. Give up. And I've heard people say, give up. And they kept going. Well, that didn't work then. So what does the enemy do? He actually brings on the battle in a physical way. And uh, Pastor John was mentioning this in our prayer training that uh, we were doing, and there will be more training coming up. Um, And just talking about when the enemy doesn't get his way one way, he will try another way. And so sometimes when we go through those physical trials, we should go to the Lord and really pray against it being a tool of the enemy. Like maybe that's the enemy using that against us. Now the Lord uses also physical troubles and trials um, to uh, do his good work in us and in the body. It's not just about us individually. But he also, um, it also could be from the enemy and we should pray about that. And in this case it definitely is from the enemy. 
And so they conspired, the enemy conspired to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. And I love this but that Nehemiah says, but we prayed, but we prayed to our God. Um, And because of them, because of the enemy, we set up a guard against them day and night. And so we see here um, two things. This is a theme in all of scripture. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's always both. So God's sovereignty, but we prayed. So Nehemiah and the others prayed about this enemy. But they also set up a guard day and night. They had a responsibility. So it's always two things. God's sovereignty in a situation, but also there's something that is our responsibility as well. And it will be different depending on the circumstances and depending on the Lord's direction. But in this case, um, they had to set up a guard now day and night. So they've got the wall built, but they still need the guard. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Sometimes the task does seem absolutely overwhelming. In our own life, or maybe what we're called to participate in, it just seems like there is no way that this can be rebuilt. And we feel weak, unable, We do not feel that we're capable of doing really anything, of making any difference. And I think that that's what's happening right here in Judah. And our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. So the enemy is actually coming to kill them, physically, to kill them. And um, it came about when the Jews who lived near them, near these enemies, this is all around the surrounding area, came and told us ten times. Now, that's a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't mean literally, you know, ten times, and finally Nehemiah listened. What it means is that again and again we kept hearing. That's what the idiom means. Again and again we kept hearing, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. So over and over, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. Over and over they kept hearing that. When you keep hearing that kind of thing, what does that do to your heart? it starts to make you very anxious, and anxiety turns to fear very quickly. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. So it was a call to arms for everybody. And in a sense, the work stopped at this point. So this was a a serious threat, that this would stop the work of God because now everybody has to stop what they're doing in building and they've all got to take arms in order to defeat this enemy who is a very real threat coming to them. And when I saw their fear, so this word fear is interesting because we see it three times in this one verse. Um, When I saw their fear... So they're fearing man. I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. There it is. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. That word fear, we will fear one of two things. 
And every, you fall into one or the other camp. You either fear man or you fear God. There is no in-between. You either give more regard to what man says or more regard to what God says. And when we stop regarding God, it's because we've started to care more about what man says. And so this is what's happened. And these are the, like, it, it is a serious threat. And so they're fearing. And when I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid, same word, of them. But, you may as well put a but in there. But remember, and remember what we've said about the word remember. When you see it in scripture, it's not just to recall, it's to act on what you know. That's what the word remember means in Hebrew, is to take action on what you know. So remember who? The Lord who is great and awesome. That word awesome is the same Hebrew word as fear. Yare. And so what Nehemiah is telling them, do not fear man, but fear God. Not the way that you fear man, but fear God in knowing who he is, in revering him. Again, revere is, is coming from the same root word, yare, as fear. So we revere God and we are not afraid of, of man. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And here's the action, fight for your brothers. Do not be afraid, you can fight them. Now these are just ordinary Jews, and these people coming up against them are strong, they're armed, and they're ready to kill them because they're angry. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us, like they had figured out the plot, and that God had frustrated their plan. So it's God who frustrated their plan. Then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. So their plan was thwarted because God's plans are never thwarted. God frustrated their plans. And they, the people of Jerusalem returned to the work of the Lord, to rebuilding the wall. And it came about from that day on that half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. So it would seem um, that you know they've divided themselves up now. So half of them are on the wall, half of them are on guard. Those who were... Um, Rebuilding the wall and those who carried the burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. So they had to go out of the walls, out of Jerusalem to get um, resources like the stones and stuff or whatever they were building with and bring it back. And so they're now doing half loads because they're carrying with one hand and they've got their weapon in the other. So it's a very real threat and these guys are very ready. So now, instead of everything stopping, we got to go down into you know bunker mode. We got to you know hunker down, and we've got to be um, not going out there. They're going out fully armed and fully doing God's work. They're doing both, and that's why I've called this message the sword and the trowel, because in one hand we carry the sword. The sword of God is what His word. We know his word and we know how to use it. Do you know his word? Do you know how to use his word? 
That's what we do all the time in learning in our Bible studies. That's why we have so many of them, is so that we will learn how to wield the sword of God correctly and accurately and um, in a defeating kind of way. And we can slay the enemy with the word of God. But in the other hand is the trowel. I didn't know what a trowel was before I married Arnie. Now I know what a trowel is. <laughs> and that's what they use, you know, for, the, for making those stone walls. So we are wielding the word of God. It is our weapon. We are fighting against the enemy, but we are also building the kingdom. And we are proclaiming the freedom that we can have in Christ. We are pro proclaiming that we are the proclaimers of the world. And so that is our task that we are about. And there's all kinds of ways that we do that. So um, this is what these people did as they went out. As for the builders, each wore his sword, girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me, stood near me, near Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah had um, this guy, you know what a shofar is? That's that great big horn that they use, the ram's horn. And so the... the um, Nehemiah would be always, he was always circulating, he was building as well, but he was constantly keeping an eye on what was going on. And the trumpeter, the guy with the shofar, was always with him. And so if they saw that there was an enemy, well, I'll read what it says. Um, at whatever place, well, and I said to the nobles, verse 19, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive. It is a big job. And we are separated on the wall far, far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So come where you hear the trumpet and fight, but God is going to be our, the one who is fighting for us. And so he says to them, um, when you hear the trumpeter, and it would seem that the trumpeters were lined up around the wall like um, one commentary I read said every 500 feet, I'm not sure where they figured that out from. But when you hear the sound of the trumpet, come to the rally call. So when somebody's down, we come together and we pray for them. And then there's another call over here, and we come together and we pray for them. And when we are down, we don't say, oh, I don't need help. We allow people to come and help us when we are down. That's what God's people do. And it's because our enemy is a strong and mighty foe, but our God is sovereign. And Nehemiah says, our God will fight for us. And so we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. So, you know, way beyond guard duty, sort of like extra time here. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. In other words, they were constantly alert. They did not let their guard down. And that's how we need to be with the enemy. We need to be vigilant. We need to be paying attention. We need to be constantly alert because our enemy is like a roaring lion. And he is prowling around seeking whom he may devour. If your guard is down, what then? And what is our guard? What is our defense? 
You can read it, Ephesians 6. It's the armor of God. It's not something that we just kind of think about every now and then. It's something that we are constantly equipped with all the time. And often I find that the enemy of our soul will attack late at night when nobody else is around, when there's nothing happening, and our thoughts get going. And he attacks us. And if we are not equipped fully with that armor of God, he gets his digs in. Now, he cannot destroy God's people, but he can demoralize us, and he can keep us from doing God's work if we are not on our guard, if we are not constantly vigilant to make sure that um, we are faithful, that we keep at it. So just looking again at what the enemy does. The enemy brings shame He brings chaos to our lives. He makes us feel defeated. And I want to look at some of the scriptures that help us with this. I love this one um, from Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel. Chapter 2, verse 8. So Hannah was praying for a child, and and, uh, the Lord gave her Samuel. And this is um, her prayer when the Lord answered her prayer. To me, this is a great scripture when we're feeling shamed. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. I love that. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And, you know, just to honor um, Hannah, Hannah was like a a nothing person. She wasn't significant. She was a wife that couldn't produce children, and so her husband got another wife who could. He loved Hannah, but she couldn't do her job. In other words, the very thing that made her useful in her culture, she couldn't do. And so she kept asking the Lord for a child. And year after year went by, and she was mocked, and she felt this big. She felt this big. She never could do what she felt was her purpose in life. And this is why when the Lord did give her a child, and her child was Samuel, like he's one of the greats in our history. And that was her influence on her boy, because he was raised by Eli, who was not a very godly man at all. And so her influence was huge on Samuel just in those first few years. And here she says, he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles. You know who the nobles are? In Psalm 113, they quote this part of Hannah's prayer. It's like verbatim quoted by the kings much later. So here this woman of insignificance was raised and quoted by kings many, many years later. And so we see that um, you know God does restore us. And where the world would shame us, God takes us out of that place of shame. And he seats us with him. And it says that the earth is, is the pillars of his throne. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, 
So Peter is, um, and John are before the Sanhedrin, and they're talking, and they're speaking to all these people. And this is what they say. So remember, Peter, just, you know, not very long before this, was shamed when he denied Christ. He felt ashamed, and he really didn't want his face to be shown. And now, this short while later, he's been restored. The Lord has lifted up his face. The Lord has brought him back to an understanding that he is loved by Jesus in spite of what he's done. He is loved by Jesus, and he's given a commission to go out and make disciples. And so that's exactly what he's doing. And in front of the very people who he was afraid to be identified with Christ with, he speaks this bold word. And just this one thing that he says in here, because they are saying, you know, salvation is of the Jews, and you have to become a Jew, and you have to be in the temple, and you have to come to us, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. We are the big dogs, and, you know, we put that other guy to death on the cross, so he's no god. And this is the kinds of things that they're saying. And Peter comes up and he says, and there is salvation in no one else, speaking of Christ. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So bold, so strong to say that it is salvation by Jesus Christ alone. And how many times we are afraid to really proclaim that boldly. If Peter can do this before the Sanhedrin, we can do this in front of the people that we meet outside these doors. And then to end it, is he the victor? So um, he totally is. And I I just think we read this often in in our church, and I think it's an important scripture to um, just have planted in our our mind's eye, like just to see the picture that is described here in Revelation. So Revelation 19, and I'm just going to read 11 to 16. And I saw heaven opened. So this is John's uh, vision, and he's seen all of this catastrophe happen on earth, and now he's seen heaven open. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And just in case there's anybody here who isn't clear, we're talking about Jesus when he returns. He's coming, and this is how he's going to be coming. He's not going to be coming like a baby again. He's coming on this battle horse, on this white horse. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. You tell me that the Word is not not significant? That is not true. Every word here is words from God above. So how could any of it be insignificant? It's all super significant, so much so that Jesus identifies himself as the revealed Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. That's us. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. That's the one we serve. So when we feel defeated or ashamed, when we feel like, well, I'm insignificant, there's nothing I can do, remember who it is we serve, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has given us a task, and that is to go and make disciples of all nations, whether it be in the kindergarten classes that we're in, whether it be overseas on the mission field, whether it be up north, whether it be in our families, wherever we are, we are doing the Lord's work, and we are to be making disciples of all. So there aren't people that, well, I picked this person, but I don't care about that person. Whoever the Lord brings into our circle of influence, that's where we have work to do. And the Lord will try and demoralize us from, or not the Lord, the enemy will try and demoralize us. <laughs> Don't laugh at my mistakes. It's unkind. <laughs> and the enemy will also try and defeat us by lying to us and saying, well, you don't have any strength. And we look at ourselves and we say, well, that's true. I don't have any strength. Yeah, but we're not doing it on our strength. Whose strength are we doing it on? And as soon as we do it on our own strength, what happens to us? Failure. Yeah, <laughs> I guess we know that one, don't we? <laughs> exactly. So I just want to encourage us. I just see so much of what God is doing in you. God is at work in this group of people. This is his body. He has brought us together in this generation, at this time, in this place, to do his good work. And the question is, do we have a mind to do his work? Yes. I do. But I need you guys. Me too, says Karen. Yeah, we do. And we need to help each other to keep that focus. That's what we do for one another. So let's pray for ourselves and ask God to truly keep working through us. Lord God, how grateful we are that you are sovereign over all. There is nothing outside of your sovereignty. You are in control. There is no chaos with you. And you love us. We are not ashamed because you love us. And you have called us to this great work. So, Lord, we recognize your sovereignty. And, Lord, we also know that you have called us and you have given us responsibility. And you have called us to do your great work. I pray that we may be here of one mind. I pray that just as we have one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, that we also would be in unity so that we might do together the work that you have called us to do, that we might support one another, that we might build this wall together, each in our own place, but all in concert. And so, Lord, we would just ask that you might be glorified by the work that is done here, that there would be many who would come to faith in you and would give glory to your name, would praise your name because of each here, opening up our mouths and telling them the truth and not being afraid to tell them that Jesus saves. So, Lord, may you be honored and praised and glorified in our midst. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Amen.